Good evening. Thank you for coming out tonight. Good to have you here. We progress in our study through the pastoral epistles. We've reached the book of Titus. So Titus chapter 1, turn to. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to step away from routine, to be under your word, to be together. We ask that for this class, all of the classes going on with kids, teens, uh, that you would cause it to be meaningful time for each person, that you would feed each soul, that you would point, as we heard Sunday, point all of us toward Christ, to be thinking of him, looking toward him. Uh, we ask that uh, by your perfect understanding of our hearts, that you would connect what we hear uh, to how we're thinking and living in ways that we could see how your word is put to use, that we would find encouragement, uh, deeper insight, correction if needed, uh, that you would work in us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll start with just a little background for uh, the book of Titus itself. Uh, it is another of what we call the pastoral epistles, which would be the, the letters to Timothy and Titus, because they are letters to an individual uh, who are involved in pastoral work compared to the other epistles, which were to churches. This is from the Apostle Paul to Titus. A lot of similarities between Titus and Timothy. Uh, like Timothy, Titus likely came to Christ through the ministry of Paul, as we'll see in verse 4. He calls Titus his true son uh, in the faith. Like Timothy, Titus is also a protege of Paul. Uh, he's mentioned in Galatians, 2 Timothy. He's mentioned extensively in 2 Corinthians. And like Timothy, Titus is sent by Paul to the churches to represent him in his apostolic work and to serve the churches to bring care for them. Titus is an early companion of Paul in his missionary journeys, probably had been involved from a ministry standpoint with Paul even longer than, than Timothy. Uh, so he is a very experienced man in ministry at this point in his life. He is very much trusted by Paul. Uh, one evidence is that Paul had sent him to Corinth at a time uh, when Paul was greatly concerned about his relationship with the Corinthian church. In between 1st and 2nd Corinthians, he was sent to Corinth, and so he uh, is referred to often in 2nd Corinthians. So Paul trusted him to visit and minister and interact with the Corinthian church when there was a lot of tension between him and that church. And we also see his trust that uh, here in, in uh, verse 5 of chapter 1, he is sent or he is in Crete representing Paul to appoint elders 
in all the churches, which I think we'd all recognize as a significant responsibility, which would take pastoral insight and uh, some biblical depth. This letter is to Titus in, on the island of Crete. I'm sure just instantly all of you have all of these geographical and all these cultural insights about Crete and what life was like there. Uh, a, really a huge island in the Mediterranean. If you can picture Greece and then Asia Minor, which is Turkey, the Aegean Sea is between them. So kind of at the bottom, at the base, southern base of the Aegean Sea is Crete. Verse 5 will indicate that Titus and Paul had been ministering in Crete together. And then when Paul leaves, Titus stays. Uh, now, this is an interesting point for Bible scholars uh, because there is no record in Acts of Paul ever ministering on the island of Crete. Yet, we clearly see that he was here in verse 5. So that, that's part of uh, the, the reason for scholars that the Apostle Paul at the end of Acts, when we find him in his Roman imprisonment, that he was at some point released from that imprisonment, made a fourth missionary journey that is unrecorded because it took place after the book of Acts uh, is wrapped up. And then he is arrested again, has a second imprisonment in Rome, uh, at the end of which he is executed. Uh, so this reference is a significant part of scholars kind of constructing that end to the Apostle Paul's ministry. Uh, this letter was written around the same time as 2 Timothy, which we just finished, and so there's some similar content, uh, some of which we'll see tonight. Um, three major themes in this letter. Uh, the first is the organization of churches, particularly of elders and churches. There is the correction of false teaching, uh, one of Paul's most popular subjects in all of his writing. You know, there, there isn't a letter he writes uh, outside of maybe Philemon where he is not correcting and responding to incorrect theology. Con Paul's constantly aware of the, the presence of poor theology, of at times even heretical theology, of anti-biblical theology. He's, he's correcting that regularly because the need is there. And uh, so it shouldn't surprise us that in the church today, there, there is a lot of bad theology. Uh, at times we can kind of think, well, of course, there's some bad teaching here and there. Um, actually, there's significant squirrely teaching, some outright bad anti-biblical teaching that is strife throughout the church in all parts of the world. It, it, it remains common. It remains a, a significant concern and need. 
And thirdly, there is instruction to believers in godliness, kind of the category we think most in any of Paul's letters, just talking to us about what it means to live a Christian life. What is the practice of that? So we're going to uh, cover verses 1 to 9 tonight. So we'll start. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So we're going to spend some time looking at his introductory comments in verses 1 to 4 and then uh, look at these instructions he gives for elders. So the opening of the letter, verses 1 to 3, Paul speaks of his being commissioned by God to serve the elect, meaning the church, which is made up of those that God has chosen for himself. And in verse 1, he says he is called to bring to them, to the people of God, the knowledge of the truth. And verse 1 also lets us know that this knowledge is connected to godliness. A belief without transformation of how we live uh, in James 2 is called dead faith. To the extent of saying, can can a faith like that even save you? The implied answer is no, because there, there's some belief and there's some confession, but if we are not changed in any way, then there is not a true work of God. Because of our, our salvation is, is not isolated to someone believing or accepting a particular religion or a set of doctrines, uh, what has taken place is 
regeneration, being born again of the Spirit of God, indwelt by the Spirit, and that will bring some measure of change. If there's no change of any real kind, then there, there is no salvation, there's no true biblical faith. Whatever it is we think we know of the truth is on a surface level. It hasn't permeated. And from God's standard of what it means to know something, we really don't know the truth. Uh, and that's why, though, we may feel awkward with it at times. Uh, we really have the authority the biblical warrant to, to, in a gracious way, in a wise way, challenge those who would claim to be Christians without any fruit. Because they are in an extremely dangerous situation, believing that I'm okay, I'm a Christian. And so there's, there's no imperative there. There's mo no motivation that their life has to move anywhere, and they remain condemned. And that's not a small segment of those who would claim to be within Christianity. It is a massive number of people in the tens of millions, if not potentially even hundreds of millions, when you speak of all the segments of, of what is called Christianity. This means that for ourselves, any thinking in us, any voice within us, that even if we don't speak it, we're really believing it, that there, there are sins that we I'm just never going to really escape this sin. It's never going to happen. This sin has me. I'm bound in it. I'll never be free of it. Or to think that I'm never really going to be a mature believer. Uh, other people can be because of different things. We, we don't think we will ever be a mature believer or that we can. Uh, that's just simply unbiblical thinking. Not only from this passage, but from the whole, the whole weight of, of New Testament Christianity. Uh, we, we mature at different rates in different ways in different places, but we have all that is needed to be increasingly godly people and to have fruitful improvement over any sort of sin even if there is some reality that there may be some particular sins that we may struggle with longer and may come back at different times, uh, we're, we're not trapped and held in sin. That is the enemy's voice and reasoning. It is not the Word of God. It is not what Paul is saying about the ministry of the Word of God. It accords with godliness. That's, that's what it does, our knowledge of the truth. And in verse 2, it says, this truth directs us to live in hope of an eternity with Christ. And that is, uh, 
Really, it's part of what Dan was alluding to in the message Sunday. What we know of God and the truth, it, it is meant to lift our hearts. And the, the lifting of Christ before us is to lift up who he is and where he is and our being are heading toward him. There is this hope of everlasting life, which is meant to dominate how we think. Because it is, it's a far bigger reality than what life is now. Just from the, the sheer aspect of, this is just years and that's forever. In some ways, it's, it's an incomparable difference. As the problem is, this is the only reality we've known. And everyone else we know has only known this. So we, we're just dominated by the now, the temporal, this world, and we can fall into thinking and acting as if this is it. And that's why Christians get themselves in all sorts of bad perspectives about how bad things are or problems or the weight of things and or God hasn't been faithful to me or God hasn't done his part or, you know, I've done this for God and what has he done for me? That's not looking beyond this lifetime at all. It is, it's really ignoring the fact the, there is this immensity of not just good, not just better, but completely perfect, unending, uninterrupted, wondrous perfection. That's a real hope that is meant to shape, affect us. And it's, it's letting us know that the, the knowledge of truth he's speaking of is basically gospel truth. The hope of eternal life is what the gospel brings us. So the truth, the knowledge of the truth that Paul is speaking of, he's really reflecting on his ministry as a whole, and he's identifying what I do is, is bring the gospel in its, its full-orbed fullness, all the truth that comes out of the gospel, all that is right up, that it implies, that it speaks, that it makes true. So all of, in, in Paul's mind, all of his teaching and instruction is always connected directly to gospel truth, that reality. There, there's never distance. We're not getting further from the gospel into deeper truths. We are always connected directly from the gospel to each truth. And time just should make us understand each of those truths in a fuller way and appreciate them more and live them out better. But we're always directly tied to realities of the gospel. People who think, you know, well, there are these deeper truths. Uh, what they're referring to are, there are these, these areas of religious study that make me feel more proud and, you know, it, we give greater attention to these and thinking we're getting to something deeper. We never get more deeper than the person of Christ, what he's done, who he is, and a life that looks like his. You don't get deeper than being 
more like Christ and loving Christ more fully. That is the depths. I've had more than one Christian, you know, particularly you know, spiritual warfare and referring kind of deeper things that they know, that they're getting into. And it ends up just being kind of pride-based, secret. It's really uh, Gnosticism for this age. Gnosticism, you, you hear about this. The idea of there are secret spiritual truths. Anyone who's talking about secret spiritual truths, uh, let's just put it, call it what it is, fanciful. Making it up. Being prideful. Gospel truth, our hope for eternity, he goes on to let us know, is completely secure because it comes from God who never lies. God who never exaggerates. Indeed, the gospel, the reality of it is always greater, fuller, more wonderful than any description that we have or have given. Words, ideas, fill the air and fill our minds. So we need clarity of the truth. Hope for eternal life, gospel truth. We need clarity of that truth. We're always in need of clarity of it. Even if we understand it well, we need clarity. Am I seeing gospel truth clearly? And how do we know? Is my life matching the various biblical descriptions of what it means to follow Christ, to be like him? Is there any form of parallel? Can you see it? And to the degree we're not seeing that in our life, it's because we're, we're lacking clarity of gospel truth. We need the stability of truth. We need the protection of gospel truth. We need the encouragement of gospel truth. On all sorts of levels and ways. And so we must be reading it. We must be praying about it. We must be with others who believe it. So we're getting the reinforcement and the reminders. We must be under its instruction. And, and quality does matter. Quality of truth. I, I'm not speaking of giftedness of communication. But is, is the teaching we're under, is it truly and faithfully aligned with gospel truth. We need to sing it. We need to preach it to ourselves. Gospel truth simply needs to be interwoven with life. It's part of what life means for us and how we think. Now, don't miss, as we think of the significance here, that that Paul speaks of. Don't miss uh, 
what he says in verse 2, that these truths about which God never lies, they, they were promised. Promised. So a promise is a commitment from one to another. They were promised before time existed. Before the universe existed. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Now, now how can that be so? How is it possible that the promise of everlasting life, the promise of the gospel, existed before man existed? Part of the answer is because God, in his complete sovereignty, before he even created us, knew the gospel would be necessary. Which means he knew your sin. So we have to keep the connection to ourselves. It's not just the big picture of what it means in general. God knew there would be sinners and sin. He knew the fall. He knew Christ would have to come. He knew we would have to be saved through faith, through the blood of Christ. Uh, we cannot say that God knew about that without saying God knew about your sin today or yesterday. The sin that you kind of pull away from God because he must be so disgusted with you and doesn't want to have any part with you, but he saved you knowing what you would do, and he still saved you. So any of the idea that, well, God kind of liked you at one point and now, maybe doesn't, well, that's simply not true. That's not to minimize the significance of sin or how seriously we take sin, how we treat it, how we repent of it. But as we're considering how does God think of me? And this is so hard for us. And part of the reason I would say that is because it is for me. And I'm figuring we're pretty close. It just the, the, the shame of sin and struggling, how does God think of me? And the struggle to pray and to just engage with God. As much as I have spoken of it and exhorted the people of God, when it comes to myself, it's almost like there's the exception. True for all of you. We have to work at what we know. The, the knowing of it has to be visceral. For us, our situation right now. And this idea of the promise before time began, it's not just God knew it would be so, and so he knew what we'd have to do, but it speaks of a promise made. So this, in part, and in my sense, it's the most significant part of this. It is that the, what's called the, the eternal covenant of the Godhead, that before time, 
And always, because God doesn't make decisions or start something, it just always is known and true for him. So the, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have agreed, have covenanted with themselves, have committed and agreed within themselves that the Son would come and bear our sin, and the Father would receive what the Son has done, and the Spirit would apply that. That is the eternal covenant of God that he has always been committed. This promise of the gospel has simply always been. There has never been where it has not existed. Which means we can trust the gospel, the commitment of God to it. Which means that it doesn't matter who we're interacting with in their mess of unbelief. And sometimes we can say to someone, you trust in Christ. All of this, God will be real to you. He will save you. He will bring change. And we can say that, and then you can have nagging thought, and you're thinking, ooh, boy, they're a mess. I mean, will it really work for them? Yes, because the... The engine is never the person saved. The, the force in the engine is what will God do? How much power does God have? How much commitment and persistence does God have to grab a hold of those whom he saves? And at one point... Totally complete their salvation and their sanctification. I often go to the reality of that I will be glorified. That's one of those hopes of glory I think we have to bring up to ourselves a lot. I really will love God with all that I have completely forever, that I'll be untouched by anything that deviates from God. All that will happen. All the inconsistency gone. That's, that's just coming for some of us fairly quickly. The confidence we have in proclaiming that God will fulfill. If anyone truly comes to him, God will fulfill the promise that we give to them. And it's true for us for when the enemy accuses us. It's true, God's commitment for us, how we think of God's view of us, what God will do, his faithfulness, because this has been promised before Time began. The promise of God before time, verse 3, 
is now declared to us in the proper time. So he has kind of this play on the idea of time. Before time began, he promised. Now, in this proper time, it's being declared. It is being known. The mystery of the gospel is now understood. And so Paul's purpose as he opens this letter is to remind Titus of how Paul thinks about his ministry of the proclamation. He is sharing with Titus his own perspective of this. And Titus, as one who has spent a lot of time with Paul, certainly understands this is part of how Paul is encouraging Titus, and so all this for you as well. This is to be your heart, your attitude. As I have left you in Crete, and you are working among the churches, this is the attitude and perspective and understanding you should have. And since this letter was meant to be given to all of the churches through all of time in this earth, it is, it is meant to be ours as well. Next, we move to Paul's qualifications then for elders, which is obviously a, a prominent reason why he left Titus in Crete, because he, he jumps into this theme first. And he says, that's why I left you there so that you would appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. It's what I gave you to do before I left. Some point later now, he's writing to them. And it, it's not as if, you know, in one week, you just go to every town and just, you know, magically raise up and appoint elders everywhere. There's, there's length of time and process in this. And this letter is, is at least in part helping Titus with things they've already talked about, uh, reminding and helping him in a process that Paul knew would be filled with all sorts of challenge. And he would need, as each of us, to be regularly reminded, kind of be pulled back. What is essential? What is key? What are we thinking about? What are we focusing on? What are priorities? Now, there are some implications beyond the, the qualifications that are given there, some important implications. Uh, the first is that although the the church is the body of Christ, this mystical, supernatural connection of all believers throughout the world and throughout time. We, there is the mystical union of the church, but the, the local church is also, particularly in this world, is an institution. And that bothers a lot of people to think of the church as an institution. Actually, there are a lot of Christians who are anti-institution in their thinking of the church. You've, you've got to tear out a lot of pages of Scripture to deny that there is 
an institutional component to the church. What we have, there, there are gifts and offices in the church. There are elders and deacons. There are responsibilities between believers. There is church discipline. There are processes of how we interact when members sin. So uh, God has given us. So there, there is some level of institutionality. The church is far more than that, but uh, a sense of, well, we don't need a local church as an institution. We can just connect with believers anywhere. Uh, uh, not and fulfill, not and properly fulfill New Testament Christianity. No, you can't. There are some things you can do, but you, you can't fulfill all that the Scripture has unless you are in a known and knowing interactive accountability relationship with a particular group of believers. You're not, you cannot fulfill all that the Scripture gives us to be and do without the understanding of that. And there's no, we're not more spiritual if we're less organized. People can think of that about the church. There are pastors who can think about it of the church service. You know, the spirit really moves when there is no organization. We just let it flow. There are times for flow, but I'm pretty sure the Bible speaks about being prepared when, when you are presenting the word of God to his people. That doesn't just pop up in your mind. We have no biblical permission to push off the institutional church. God established the church for the express reason. Why are there local churches? Why did Paul say, appoint elders, leaders in all the churches? Because he wants the believers in all those communities to be part of all of those churches and to be Submissive in the way that's biblical to those leaders. God doesn't appoint leaders and then you can ignore them if you want. God wants all his people to be deeply committed and engaged in a local church. Another principle we see embedded in Paul's direction to Titus is the idea of the plurality of elders. Uh, this passage is used as one of the primary uh, texts to demonstrate that uh, there is meant to be a plurality of elders in every church, meaning multiple elders in each church. He says, I want you to appoint elders, plural, in each town. And in fact, there's only one singular reference to elders in the New Testament. It's always plural except one. I forget what, where that one is, but it's always in the plural. So elders in the church is always speaking in plural. There's meant to be multiple elders. The benefits of this are many and significant. It's not just that, you know, a church is big enough that it needs more than one. Even in a tiny church, there should be more than one. Uh, the need for accountability, the need for shared wisdom, 
the need for shared burden, uh, and the reality of, of different gifting. Some guys are very gifted. There are some pastors, highly gifted, but no, one, no one's all gifted. We're all partially gifted. And that is not just true within the congregation, but within the leadership team. There, there's a variety of gifts and the need for the gifts to be coming together and the recognition that we are not all gifted and we need the gift of others and we need the perspective of others and the experience of others. So the importance of uh, plurality, and, and as we would understand it, then there is equal authority because the Bible doesn't give us a pecking order of, of levels of pastors. And so we operate at Green Tree. There are five elders, and all of us have the same weight of authority in decision-making. We try to give... Uh, you know, weight to each pastor in particular areas where they have responsibility or they have experience. So we, we willingly give more weight to different guys in particular areas, but all of us share equal authority. So my role as lead pastor is delegated to me. It's not because I have more authority than any of the other guys, it's a particular role within the pastoral team delegated to me. But the responsibility is shared between us. In my mind, the greatest of all the reasons for a plurality of elders is it, it forces us to be character forward. Because if everyone has equal authority, uh, the world will think, that's just a recipe for a train wreck. How do, you, how do you make a decision if there isn't someone in charge? And the answer to that is character. You have to work at it for, for a plurality to work. There has to be the continual practice of listening and sharing and giving and taking and getting over and forgiving and not being bothered and accepting and understanding the other. Why would they think different? We, we have to work through patience, kindness, listening. We have to work at what then is in all the following verses, our character. And if, if what we claim is the highest principle in all of Christian life is to glorify God in all things, then even though there are all different sorts of church governments and leadership structures, uh, what structure helps us to glorify God more than any other? And I think the one that forces us to work on character is what helps us to glorify God most. To me, that is uh, the overwhelming distinction of the value for that. And a brief comment on the idea of calling of elders. Notice verse 6, the beginning, as he begins to describe, well, who could be an elder if anyone is above approach? In a real sense, elders are just ordinary church members. 
There's nothing special about the Christians that have the office of elder pastor. They're regular Christians. Now, we see they're, they're meant to be mature believers, understand scripture. They're, there should be development of their Christian life, but it's not that elder, the office of pastor and elder is just for these certain Christians that just kind of float above the rest of Christendom. And if you've been here for a long time, you would know, well, that's certainly true here. The pastors are not the five best Christians in the church. Hopefully we're five of the mature believers in the church, some days more so than others. But the fact that if anyone then is fulfilling these things, there is elder potential there. Now, we see in the New Testament, to be an elder, you need to be a male. We saw that in, in 1 Timothy. You need to be a mature believer, experience in ministry. You need to be trained, godly, and able to teach. And sometimes there are men who feel a strong inner call. And we can think, well, pastors are just those that God somehow selected out of all of the world. And sometimes there is a reality in that of men receive a, a call at a particular time where they just know that God has called them to be a pastor. Though there are also numbers of guys who can think that and it's not true because they don't have the qualifications. And other times, pastors are those, and it seems to be true, the predominant true here, on Crete, where there's a lot of young believers, it's where the existing elders are identifying in the church those men who have these kinds of qualifications who would be appropriate to be trained and prepared and fill the role as pastor. Now, the reason to bring that up here and now for a congregation is that although elders need to be respected for obvious reasons. If there's not respect with the congregation, how does the church operate? That's, we would all say, well, that's not healthy. So pastors need to be respected. However, neither the elders themselves or the congregation should improperly exalt pastors. I don't think that's a big problem here. But there are churches and there are Christian cultures where that is a huge problem. Where just by being in the office of pastor, you are unchallenged. I had a, a high-ranking church leader nationally in another country say to me directly that even if a pastor is in sin, the member should not correct him. I thought, what Bible are you reading? <laughs> now, this, this is a long-term Christian who is theologically trained and should know better. But his cultural glasses and his thinking of what 
pastor leadership is causes him not to see clear and direct biblical truth. And I know pastors who are in other countries where that challenge within the church, that a pastor is just so exalted that you can never question. And that's just not healthy, it's not biblical, it's not good. So if any of you start to exalt us, Theoretically, think twice, especially if it's the young guys. Well, the rest of our passage, we're going to go over this pretty quick, examines the required character of elders. Uh, A lot of this, very similar to 1 Timothy 3, so we've looked at just... um, in the last semester, we had gone over all these, and um, I'm not going to go over each one, just first to clarify a couple of the statements that can be misunderstood, and in a way that creates harm. Uh, both of them in verse 6, the husband of one wife, and in a lot of churches, kind of traditionally, the thought, well, then, if a pastor was ever divorced, then he could never, you could never be a pastor if you were married before. So if you read that, you could even say if someone was widowed and were remarried, they, they couldn't, if, you, if you're going to take it in that way. But Bible scholars are, are I'm not going to say universally because there's always exceptions, but I can't think of a serious Bible scholar that I've read over the last number of years who who doesn't recognize, and the same language is used, that the the phrase husband of one wife is the sense of a a one-woman man. So it's speaking of the type of attitude and commitment. Uh, A pastor in his relationship with His wife should be one who is fully committed. And obvious, the commitment is there to their wife. And the statement following that of his children are believers. And that's created difficulty. There have been pastors who have been cast out, have been removed from the office, and I know a pastor, a wonderful godly man, who was removed from his position. He was a founding pastor, removed for years. Eventually, the church reestablished him, recognizing they had handled it wrong because he had a child that was not living for the Lord, living in rebellion for the Lord. And so that was used, well, you can't be a pastor anymore. The, the word where it says his children are believers, uh, that word can also be translated are faithful or are trustworthy. And when you think of what is said in 1 Timothy 3, written around this same time, by the same man to Timothy for the same purpose. What are the qualifications of the elder? And he, both of them address the issue of marriage and the commitment there, and both of them address the relationship with children. 
And there it says, manage their children and household well. And so there we see that fits. That's the same principle that uh, your children should be faithful and trustworthy. In the home, your children are living obediently under the direction of the home. And that's not going to be perfect as every home and child. But the, the principle in all of this uh, with husband, wife of children is there, there's an emphasis on family because an elder, if they don't know how to work within relationships, how can they lead a church? If you can't handle godly relationships in your own home, you're not going to be able to handle relational interaction within the church. That's just a train wreck waiting to happen. And also, uh, it, it also points out something that is often not seen by pastors and even churches, and that is uh, the ministry of the church is not a higher priority than your family, which we see Timothy and Titus make that clear. Your family life and your ministry to family is, is not under or lower than your ministry to the church. It's where you start. If, if you're not faithful there, it says you shouldn't even be a pastor. And so we see the importance of the role of family because of the role of relationship and, and someone who's not compartmentalizing different parts of Christian life. The overall character of an elder, if you look at all that is said there, not being arrogant, quick-tempered, not being a drunkard, violent, not being greedy, instead a lover of God, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. Uh, he has the phrase he uses twice, verses 6 and 7, someone who is above reproach. It doesn't mean someone who's faultless. We know that unicorn doesn't exist. It's not a faultless Christian. Uh, it is a mature, consistent Christian who's not going to bring shame upon the gospel, who will not bring shame upon the church or upon their office. And that's part of why we're warned, don't let someone who's too new of a believer be a pastor. It's why it speaks of being trained and knowing the word of God. Do you ever see on YouTube every once that they have of a child who's preaching in a church and a lot of these child preachers. And, you know, they'll just be, they're just repeating, you know, all the lines they've heard. And, you know, people say, oh, the Spirit of God is upon them and they're mighty in ministry. And what a ridiculous absurdity. That just, it's an embarrassment to the church. So what you're saying, you, you don't have an adult man who can fill that role? We are to be above reproach, so godliness is comprehensive. It involves all of life. So 
not a compartmentalized life. Some areas were godly, some areas we just are uncontrolled. It's not ex- external only. We, we follow rules and we look good, but the heart is not following. It's not a simplistic view, but recognize godliness, godliness is a clear path, but in some way it, it involves everything. Godliness isn't just picking up a few different things. To be godly involves everything all of the time. And so there, there needs to be some sense of uh, somewhere their godliness, their understanding is a part of life in general. There has to be a maturity to it, and that's what he's getting to for the understanding of the church and for Titus. The final quality in the final verse is the only one that deals with competence, and again, we have that in Timothy. There is There's one area where there is an ability required. The rest is all character. There is one ability required, and that is the ability to communicate and teach the Word of God. That's the single competence area that is given. Verse 9 says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy Word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So they must be faithful to Scripture and be able to communicate the Scriptures. Guys have different levels of gifting and communication. And some guys are are better in a classroom, small setting, or small group, some before a crowd. There are different ways to communicate in different places where you feel good communicating. I'm very comfortable in a classroom or you know, from the pulpit, as many times as I've led a small group over the decades, um, I never feel I do it well. I have never felt that I lead small groups well. I do it, and some of you guys are in my groups, you're going, yeah, yeah, that'd be about right. Uh, partly because as pastors, we've committed and said every pastor, one of the responsibilities, every pastor should be leading at least one small group. So there I am. You guys come each week, each time, and take what you get. I I don't feel that I lead the conversation well. I don't feel that I develop. I, I, I simply don't feel comfortable doing it. Never have. And I've done it hundreds of times. And I don't feel any more comfortable now than I did 20 years ago. I feel just as, that's not very good. We have have different gifting and areas of skill, but can we, are we able to look at scripture and we know what was the intention, what was scripture saying there? Not just our opinions about it, can we come to the understanding of its intention, what are the doctrines, and be able to communicate and make it clear to people? And are we able to discern, because of our understanding of Scripture as a whole and the comprehensive truths, are we able to discern what then is ill-fitting? And can we then we make decisions in the life of the church that would represent what is biblical truth, even though you have to make decisions that don't have a particular verse that tells you what to do. 
but you need the understanding of Scripture to see, well, how would Scripture apply here? And are we able to identify false teaching and false understanding to correct it within ourselves and the church? And that is all needed by anyone who would be a pastor or consider it. And part of, uh, and I'll just wrap up with this, the, uh, one of the benefits we have with being a part of Sovereign Grace Churches is even the ordination process itself, that training and preparatory. Ordination takes place, a local church ordains. The region approves those who can be ordained as a Sovereign Grace pastor. So this is one of the, those areas which we voluntarily submit to Sovereign Grace churches, and one is the area of, of ordination, which is meant to protect all of our churches. We are making sure that the men who are preaching and leading in our churches, we would agree and understand as pastors that these are fit men. Because once you start ordaining men who are not fit, you are sowing the seeds for the destruction of a church and of a denomination. And so there is the, the testing of Bible knowledge, of theological knowledge. There is the testing between, of a panel of pastors. Are, are you able to take scenarios and questions and give an answer to a group of pastors using scripture to direct how you would deal with that issue, that situation. All of that is part, there are papers to be written on theological points, so it, it's a rather extensive, comprehensive process that we share an agreement together as a region so that we can protect our churches and ensure there's gonna be faithful men that serve. Uh, one of the things I, I'm not a, like a committee guy, the finance committee I wouldn't do good on, and there are other committees that I wouldn't like to be on because of detail, but I am on the regional ordination committee, and that I enjoy because you're working with men as they're going through the process, and it's hard when you have to tell a guy that he failed an exam. <laughs> It's just always awkward. But uh, I like knowing that I'm in a position to guard and watch over our churches and the kind of men who are ordained. And we have some great guys that are being ordained, some impressive men. So next week, uh, picking up then the rest of the chapter, start dealing with some of those false teaching issues that have to be dealt with. Some guy's teaching, I don't know who he is, some guy we found. So. Heavenly Father, thank you for this night, for these people and your grace. May it go before us as we finish this day and enter another. In Jesus' name, amen.